most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, May 16th, 2022, the 481st day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Before we get started, a reminder always about the great American patriot, Mike Lindell and his great American manufacturing company, MyPillow. You can go to MyPillow.com right now. Use the promo code reasonable and receive up to 60% off items across the entire website store. You'll also get a free gift, which I believe to be Mike Lindell's autobiography. So make your home comfortable, make yourself comfortable, make your whole life comfortable. Go to MyPillow.com, promo code reasonable, grab yourself a mattress pad, grab yourself some Giza dream sheets, some pillows, some slippers, some towels, do the whole thing. You'll be more comfortable. You'll be supporting this show. You'll be supporting the great patriot Mike Lindell and his great American manufacturing company, MyPillow. And to stay with the subject of Mike Lindell for just a little longer, Mike Lindell was Lou Dobbs' guest today on Lou Dobbs' podcast, The Great America Show. And he talked a bit about the proceedings with his lawsuits regarding election fraud, the lawsuits he is involved with, his legal offense team is involved with. The first one down in Arizona, the filing for preliminary injunction to stop the use of the election fraud machines in the Arizona primary elections and then the general election in November of this year. So he mentioned that these preliminary injunctions Cases for preliminary injunction are generally decided pretty quickly after they are filed. He said it's usually within three to four weeks. Now, is he right about that? I don't know. Did I hear him correctly? I think I did. But hey, maybe he meant something else and I misunderstood him. So let's not get precious about dates. But it sounds to me like things are in motion and we could start hearing about the results fairly soon. And it's worth repeating again how massive it would be if any state is legally enjoined from using the election fraud machines this year. That would be the beginning of an avalanche because the court would clearly be saying these machines are wide open to fraud and manipulation and abuse. They exist to yield false election outcomes. That is clear by the evidence. Hopefully the court We'll see that the same way. So Lindell said that he is also going state to state and setting up these lawsuits in every state. His goal is to get all 50. He said that South Dakota should be coming this week or perhaps next week. Alabama would follow that. And then he has others that he is lining up. So the Arizona filing was two weeks ago or so. And he has made it sound like we will be getting two more states filing in the next two weeks. And at that point, we may begin hearing things coming out of Arizona. And if that's the case, then you can imagine candidates will begin popping up in all sorts of states across the country who are willing to sign on to this effort and be litigants in these lawsuits. Because part of what gives these suits importance and standing is that there are candidates up for election who are claiming 
I will be subject to a fraudulent election based on these machines. That is what the case is about. In Arizona, Carrie Lake and Mark Fincham are both signed on to that case. They are plaintiffs on that case because their election outcomes will be affected by the presence of machines. So Lindell is trying to find multiple candidates in states around the country to file similar claims. And he needs groups of attorneys in each one of those states around the country to file those claims. So that's where all that is. And think whatever you like about Mike Lindell. Dismiss it if you want. But the Arizona case is filed with Kurt Olson and Alan Dershowitz among the attorneys filing the lawsuit. So Lindell's team is holding up its end of the bargain. Lindell cannot influence the decisions that courts make, but the job is being done. And if these machines are knocked down anywhere, that is enormous. And so I hope to see that happen and for Mike Lindell to be treated as the hero that he is. Now, another hero from this weekend is Garrett Ziegler and his great research team, Marco Polo. Now, as many of you know, I had Garrett on this show last summer and I am in frequent contact with Marco Polo. I have read parts of the draft of the final report and I know the quality that they are bringing. I know the depth of the research and investigation, the way they have connected all of the various characters and entities and events that make up the Biden crime family, the Biden corruption enterprise. And I very much look forward to the release of that report so that everybody else can see what they've been doing as well. It is incredible work. And they have been accused, especially recently, of what is being referred to as gatekeeping the Hunter Biden laptop, which is just ridiculous. First off, there have been places on the Internet where people can get that laptop for well over a year now. But beyond that, they are trying to make sure that their work is airtight and presented in a way that people can understand, presented in a way that law enforcement officials will see. Oh, yeah, look at this. Here's a crime. Here's a pretty good trail of evidence. I wonder what else I might be able to find. The claim of gatekeeping is silly. That would be like saying that John Durham is gatekeeping the Russiagate and Spygate hoaxes. I mean, no, he's not. He's doing his job the way it must be done. Marco Polo is doing its job the way it must be done on their terms, right? They've decided the best way to do the job is the way they're doing it. That's why they're doing it that way. And they're going to make sure the job is done well before they present it to the public. Claims about gatekeeping are absurd. That's just pointless sniping. But even that claim itself was proven even more ridiculous this weekend as Marco Polo released approximately 128,000 emails from Hunter Biden's laptop. They release them in a searchable format. You can just go to bidenlaptopemails.com and you can do keyword searches throughout all of the emails. You want to go search MetaBiota? Go search it. Ukraine? Go search it. The emails are all there. The metadata is there so they can be authenticated. They have made it possible for everyone to go dig as much as they want, and they've made it easy to do because you can search it. So I don't know where in the world people get off getting upset about people who, by all accounts, including my own personal experience, are working harder than just about anyone out there, and they are showing the results. And the final result will pretty clearly be something with real impact. And the other thing that I don't think people understand is that so much of what you see coming out in mainstream media about Hunter Biden and what was on the laptop and the webs of corruption the laptop exposes, most of that 
also comes from Marco Polo's research. So thankfully, most people don't get wrapped up in all that foolishness. And they've gone to BidenLaptopEmails.com. The site was hit constantly over the weekend, which caused a lot of delays in people being able to access the page. It would take like 45 seconds to load, but it is working. And so if you're patient, it will all come up and you can look at the emails for yourself. You can do all the digging on your own, find the stories, put the stories out. But either way, stop going after Mike Lindell. Stop going after people like Garrett Ziegler. No one is working harder than those two parties and the people around them. They are on it all day long. If their work doesn't yield results, well, hey, then you can judge them based on their results. And I think that they would say, yes, please judge us based on the results. But all the rumors and the innuendo and the doubting of people's motivations is, first of all, pointless. And second of all, ridiculous. Like, what are you exposing about yourself if you're going after the people that work the hardest because you haven't gotten the results from them yet that you want? But I digress. So over the weekend, there was a brand new surprise trip to Ukraine by a small contingent of Republican communists, Romneys, led by Mitch McConnell. And he was joined by Texas Senator John Cornyn, Wyoming Senator John Barrasso, and Maine Senator Susan Collins, who it turns out is exactly the same size as the comedic actor from Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky himself, the great military leader, the conqueror of all, Volodymyr Zelensky, the comedic actor, is Susan Collins' size. And while there's no way of knowing this to be true, it seems like Mitch was supposed to be heading over there with the $40 billion of aid that was promised to the Ukrainian regime, which is really just the global communist regime. And instead, he went empty handed because Rand Paul delayed for a few days, at least the passage of the $40 billion aid package. And so I wonder whether or not Mitch and his fellow Romneys arrived in Ukraine with their hats in their hands, very sorry that they didn't come through with the money that they had promised. If this was a mafia movie, one of them probably would have had a finger chopped off before they get to leave Kiev, assuming they are actually in Ukraine at all. One of the biggest pieces of news over the weekend about the situation in Ukraine is that Finland and Sweden have announced their desire to join NATO. And so let's go through some of the details on that. ABC News has prepared an explainer for everyone. Finland and Sweden have signaled their intention to join NATO over Russia's war in Ukraine, and things will move fast once they formally apply for membership in the world's biggest security alliance. Russian President Vladimir Putin has already made clear that there would be consequences if the two Nordic countries join. So it's important for NATO to bring them swiftly into the fold where they can benefit from the security guarantees that membership provides. Now, that's awfully interesting because Sweden and Finland were at no threat of Russian aggression prior to this. So they actually don't need the security guarantees that NATO provides until they make moves to join NATO. So the argument is that they are doing something to fortify their own security, but the thing they're doing for that end is actually itself the security risk. Very, very smart, global communists. What a move. How will it be countered? They're off to a quick start. Finland and Sweden are NATO's closest partners. They have functioning democracies, well-funded armed forces, and contribute to the alliance's military operations and air policing. Any obstacles they face will merely be of a technical or possibly political nature. Well, wait a second. I thought Ukraine was one of NATO's closest partners, and that's why they're being so heavily defended by not official NATO forces and not official forces by any of the NATO countries, just foreign mercenaries and Nazi battalions who are funded by NATO 
and directed by NATO, but they're definitely not NATO. How long will it take for Finland and Sweden to join NATO? NATO officials say the membership procedure could be completed in a couple of weeks. But the most time-consuming part, ratification of their accession protocols by the alliance's 30 member countries, sometimes involving parliaments, could take months. How many is anyone's guess, although that step has taken 8 to 12 months with recent candidates? Canadian Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie said Monday that we think it could take days for Canada. The fastest were West Germany, Turkey, and Greece, whose endorsement took around four months in the 1950s when NATO was less than half its current size. Still, war on NATO's doorstep is sure to focus minds. And here's the kicker. The U.S. and Britain, among others, stand ready to provide security support if needed until the process is complete. You got that? So they're basically making Sweden and Finland ostensibly members of NATO without actually going through the entire process. They are reframing it so that Sweden and Finland are both considered NATO countries, despite the fact that they will not be NATO countries for a good long time, months. So how does a country go about joining NATO? NATO's membership process isn't formalized and the steps can vary. First, though, a request to join must be submitted. It usually comes in the form of a letter from a government minister or leader. NATO then assesses that request. That's done in a sitting of the North Atlantic Council of the 30 member countries, probably at ambassadorial level. The NAC decides whether to move toward membership and what steps must be taken to achieve it. This depends on how well aligned the candidate countries are with NATO's political, military and legal standards and whether they contribute to the security in the North Atlantic area. It should pose no problem for Finland and Sweden. How do membership talks work? If the NAC gives a green light, accession talks are held. These are likely to be completed in just one day. The steps are fairly straightforward. The candidate is asked to commit to uphold Article 5, NATO's collective defense clause guaranteeing that an attack on any one ally would be met with a response from them all. It would have to commit to spending obligations concerning the NATO in-house budget, which runs to around $2.5 billion. The candidate is made aware of their role in NATO defense planning and of any other legal or security obligations they might have, like the vetting of personnel and the handling of classified information. NATO staff then write a report informing allies about the outcome of the talks. The report states what issues were raised with the partner and what commitments that country made. At the same time, the candidate sends a letter, usually from a foreign minister, confirming that their country accepts these obligations. The accession report and candidate letter are submitted once more to the NAC for a final decision. The council, which can meet at the level of ambassadors, ministers, or leaders, then reviews the application and decides whether to sign the accession protocol with the candidate. If yes, a small ceremony is held, giving a symbolic and legal form to this part of the membership process. The protocol is then sent to capitals for ratification, according to the 30 national procedures, some of which require parliamentary approval. Once completed, the invitee then ratifies the protocol and deposits it in Washington. They are then officially a member and their national flag is hoisted outside NATO headquarters in Brussels. Are there any objections to them joining? NATO takes all its decisions by consensus, so each country has a de facto veto. Last week, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan raised concerns about Finland and Sweden's stance on Kurdish militants whom Turkey classifies as terrorists. Erdogan didn't threaten outright to veto membership, and officials and analysts believe he won't stand in their way. No other country has raised serious objections to them joining, either in public, at home, or at NATO headquarters in Brussels, officials say. So, yeah, Turkey, at least according to the news, is using this potential veto as a bargaining chip to enhance their own position or to take concessions from the NATO alliance in order to give their approval. We shall see. But what we should be very clear about is that 
this announcement today does not mean that Sweden and Finland are now in NATO. We have this strange tendency to hear a piece of news like this and assume that something that's being talked about and considered and maybe put through the formal process is just simply real and takes effect immediately. That is not what's happening here. And it's actually important to keep this stuff in mind. Yes, both countries have made their announcements. Do the people of both of these countries back that decision? Well, I don't know because I'm not an expert on these countries whatsoever. But if the reaction of the world's people generally to further encroachment by the global communist regime in their countries, if that is reflected at all in Sweden and Finland, one would expect some pushback from the people and whatever elements of the good twin might hold power in those countries. So it's not even a done deal for those countries at this point. Yes, their leaders can announce all sorts of things, new alliances, whatever. It doesn't mean that those alliances are ever going to come into being, and it doesn't mean that they will ever take the sort of power that can affect real world events, particularly real world events like a hot war with Russia that the West and NATO may well want, but haven't yet gotten through all of this so far. And we are a week away from this being a three month long event in Ukraine. February 24th will be three months ago next week. There is no indication anywhere that Ukraine and whatever Western forces are backing the Ukrainian regime and the Ukrainian Nazis fighting the battles are even competing in this quote unquote war. They are being dismantled on the battlefield everywhere. That is the reality. It doesn't matter what the media says. It doesn't matter how many times they say, well, Russia has not taken Kiev. Russia never intended to take Kiev. That has been said countless times by Russian officials. If you don't want to believe them, fine, I guess. But the reality on the ground is the same either way, whether or not you believe them. They have not attempted to sack Kiev. That is not because Ukraine fought them back with their 10,000 armed citizens that the comedic actor gave guns to. That's just not what's happening. And there's no reason to think it even might be what's happening, except that the news says so. But the news says all sorts of things that are absolutely provably false immediately. The news tries to cover up the fact that there are Ukrainian Nazis at all, even though the comedic actor himself posted on Instagram last week a photo of a Ukrainian soldier with one of the Nazi insignias on his chest. There has been a wealth of research done on the Ukrainian propaganda efforts and the PR firms they're working with to produce this propaganda. We have had reports from our own media about how our intel communities are falsifying intelligence and spreading it throughout the Western world. And their explanation for that is that if they put out all these narratives, they actually have the ability to stop Russia from doing things that Russia was going to do. The only problem is the only indication that Russia was going to do any of the things they're saying Russia was going to do is the same falsified reports that they put out. And I talk about this often, but it's one of the times you have to remember that you're not getting two sides of a story from the mainstream media. There's not a part of it that must be right, that you can average MSNBC and Fox out to, and you finally find the truth. It is all falsified in the mainstream media. It is falsified intentionally because they want you to believe a particular thing. And of course, we know they do this. We also know that that same intelligence community is embedded in our mainstream media organizations. And this has been true for decades. Remember Operation Mockingbird? They still have elements of the intel community 
inside the media organizations. So you can know from that that the news we are getting, the information we are getting from mainstream media comes directly from the intel agencies. Okay, that is what we are supposed to believe. The story of the intel community is what makes up our perceived reality. If you are addicted to the central narrative, if you believe what the television is telling you, that means you believe and accept the CIA narrative, the global communist narrative, the fullness of all of that, the military industrial complex, any of the entities and organizations and people influencing the central narrative, creating the central narrative are telling you their side, what they need you to believe, the false reality they are creating. That is what is projected on your television screen. And the problem is even people who are mostly awake to this dynamic still give the television story some weight. They still think, well, I mean, part of it must be true. Like you can't argue that there's actually a war going on in Ukraine right now. Turns out, yes, you can actually. It turns out that the scenario where Russia is actually waging a special military operation to dismantle what is referred to as the Ukrainian military and to denazify Ukraine and to get evidence of the global communist corruption in Ukraine regarding biolabs, corruption in the energy business, money laundering, human and child trafficking. All of the things that happen in Ukraine, Russia is getting evidence of those things. Russia is trying to protect the independent republics in the Donbass. All of these goals were clearly stated by the Russians at the beginning. And if you look at the reality we can detect from independent reporting on the ground, an analysis of all the information flying in from both sides, well, some of that information actually does represent a coherent picture of reality. It's just not the one that comes out on our television screens. We're told all these politicians and Jill Biden and Justin Trudeau and you too are all making surprise visits to a war zone to inspire the Ukrainian people. Does anyone believe that? Could anyone possibly believe that? And if we don't believe it, then why are we buying the rest of it? So here's Putin's position on Finland and Sweden today. Yes, this is a problem that is created completely artificially since it is done in the foreign policy interests of the United States. In general, NATO is used as an instrument of one country's foreign policy. And that tracks exactly, by the way, with what Colonel Douglas McGregor told Lou Dobbs on his podcast last week, NATO is basically an instrument of United States evil twin. I'm adding that part. Colonel McGregor did not say that. But NATO's an instrument of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy as guided by the evil twin, as guided by people like the Clintons and Obama, the Bushes, the fake president, Joe Biden. That is all in service of the global communist agenda. There's nothing mysterious about any of that. So Putin knows exactly what the force is he's dealing with. It doesn't matter how our media portrays it to us. And it doesn't matter what your friends who get all the information from the television believe it to be. We need to stop acting like that side has a point. Okay. If you agree with the television about everything, you don't know anything. You don't need to take these people seriously in any conversation. If they're agreeing with the television the entire time, if they are saying things that the mainstream media says, you should disregard all those things. We don't need to pretend that that is an equally valid competing narrative. It's not. It's complete and total fiction. Wherever truth is incorporated into the central narrative, it is only because there is an underlying real event and the truth that they express about that event cannot otherwise be avoided. 
The entire purpose of the propaganda and censorship regime is to reinterpret reality so that the public at large will not understand what's happening. But instead of doing that, most people are conditioned to think that the mainstream media is telling at least mostly truth and that even if people are completely aware that nearly everything the mainstream media says is an outright lie, people still give it weight. That would be like gathering the most honest person you know and the most dishonest person you know, asking them both to tell you the truth about a given situation, and then considering that both of those should be weighed equally. The picture of truth that we are able to get about events happening across the world is never going to be perfect, all right? And by the same standards, there is no truth that we can access that will ever be absolutely perfect. We're never going to nail the stories down 100%, 100% of the time. But that doesn't mean that on one hand, we have an incomplete truth. And on the other hand, we have a total falsehood and that we should respect both of these positions the same amount. And the problem with this is that when people accept the totally false story, even in part, it takes away from the truth that they're actually able to get from the world. It makes no sense to mix information you know is bad into your picture of reality, thinking that somehow that provides a more accurate picture than if you just simply left it all out. Now, changing subjects without a segue, John Durham's trial of Michael Sussman begins today, and the meltdown is beginning And for a taste of that, let's go to Politico this morning. John Durham has already won. That's the headline. Most people are probably not looking for a reason to revisit the 2016 presidential election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. But if you are, then you're in luck this week. Beginning Monday morning in Washington, special counsel John Durham, the prosecutor who was appointed in 2019 by Attorney General William Barr to investigate the origins of the Trump-Russia investigation in the wake of the Mueller report, finally gets to present his case to a jury in federal court. Now, while it may be true that Bill Barr affirmed John Durham's status as a special counsel, he was actually appointed as a U.S. attorney by former Attorney General Jeff Sessions on October 28th, 2017, totally coincidentally, the same day as the first Q post. But that's just a random occurrence and a funny coincidence. Back to Politico. Though it's come to represent much more in the public imagination, the actual charge is quite narrow. The defendant is Michael Sussman, a lawyer who worked at the outside law firm representing the Clinton campaign, and he is facing a single count of lying to the FBI's top lawyer in the run up to the election in order to instigate a criminal investigation into Trump. And notice how this is being framed. One very narrow case, a single charge, just lying to the FBI as if there's nothing else going on here in these filings. John Durham has already begun laying out what he calls a joint venture conspiracy. And he has already presented evidence in these filings showing that the entire Russia hoax, the Steele dossier, all of it was generated by the Clinton campaign and the DNC working with different outside groups that are now all trying to claim attorney client privilege. And they did this with the assistance of the FBI and the CIA. Joe Biden and Barack Obama were aware of all of this as it was happening during the 2016 campaign, and they did not lift a finger to stop it. All of the Democrat power structure is implicated in this broader case in the joint venture conspiracy. So they can try to paint this as some narrow issue that only involves Michael Sussman lying to the FBI. That is not true at all. 
Since Durham's appointment, however, a clear dynamic has dominated his investigation, namely a palpable desire among right wing operatives, commentators and media outlets to use Durham's work, no matter how thin or nebulous the underlying evidence may be to try to vindicate the theory that Trump was grievously victimized by the Democratic Party in an attempt to defeat him and later hobble his presidency. Well, yes, they were literally spying on the executive office of the White House while Donald Trump was president. There is evidence of that. It's not nebulous. This isn't a theory. This is treason and it's proven. But how do you cover that up? Well, since they can't cover it up completely, the filings exist. They are real. They are part of the public information now. Well, you have to make it so that no one cares. You tell everybody that each individual part of it is a very small thing so that when a new part arises, you think, oh, well, that's just a small thing, just like that other small thing was. And then you never actually put together the big picture. The nerve of these writers is unbelievable. The assertion that Donald Trump being grievously victimized by this operation, that's just not a big deal. Oh, Donald Trump's just complaining again. Is that what it is? They tried to undermine a presidential campaign by using the law enforcement agencies and the intelligence agencies to falsely smear a political opponent while spying on his campaign. And they continued that through the transition period and into his presidency. That is not the peaceful transition of power by any stretch. When it comes to perpetuating that narrative, whether or not the jury ultimately rules in his favor, Durham has effectively already won. If the investigation has revealed anything of note, it is just how secondary the law has come to be in politically charged prosecutions like this one. So the assertion now from this former federal prosecutor, his name is Ankush Kardori, is that it is John Durham who doesn't care about the rule of law, not the people who staged the actual coup. It's John Durham. The trial beginning this week was supposed to be the culmination of an otherwise spotty and languorous investigation now entering its fourth year. During the run-up to the 2020 election, both Trump and Barr suggested that Durham would finally unveil dramatic evidence of misconduct within the FBI and, Ju and Justice Department during the Obama administration. But nothing of the sort happened. The only conviction that Durham has obtained was from a low-level FBI lawyer who altered an internal email while working on an application to surveil advisor Carter Page. That was a falsified FISA application that they took to the FISA court so that they could spy on Carter Page and anyone who Carter Page talked to and anyone those people talked to. All of that was falsified. Again, not some narrow problem. This is Kevin Kleinsmith they're referring to. They don't even name him. And it would not be wrong to assume that the reason they don't name him is because they don't want anyone to look him up. They just want to have all the readers accept, oh, he's just a low level guy. He barely did anything wrong. He just kind of uh, falsified an email. And yes, it was used to gain warrantless wiretaps against the other party's presidential candidate and his campaign. <laughs> but it's not a big deal. Despite much hype, Durham's prosecutors were eventually forced to concede that there was, quote, no indication that the lawyer's misrepresentation actually affected the investigation, while the sentencing judge said that the lawyer was simply, quote, saving himself some work rather than trying to mislead the presiding surveillance court. OK, things picked up last fall in September. Durham's team indicted Sussman in November. They charged a researcher named Igor Danchenko with lying to the FBI about his work on the infamous Steele dossier in a case that will go to trial in October. The case against Sussman was curious from the start because it was apparent that Durham's legal team was less interested in a discreet misrepresentation to the FBI during a single meeting than it was in the broader and arguably unseemly opposition research work of the Clinton campaign, its lawyers and the investigative firm Fusion GPS. 
And somehow this is meant to imply that John Durham doesn't care about the law, which might seem like a more valid claim if you didn't realize that John Durham was outlining what he calls, in his words, a joint venture conspiracy. It's strange that this Politico writer hasn't noted that yet. Prosecutors have alleged that Sussman lied to then FBI General Counsel James Baker at a meeting between the two men on September 19th, 2016, during which Sussman provided several white papers and data to Baker concerning a possible link between computers in Trump Tower and Russia's Alpha Bank by stating, quote, falsely that he was not acting on behalf of any client when in fact he was supposedly doing so, quote, on behalf of both the Clinton campaign and a technology industry executive named Rodney Jaffe, who hoped to obtain a position in the Clinton administration. Now let's back up for one second. Concerning a possible link between Trump and Russia's Alpha Bank. Now what this Politico writer is failing to mention is that there was not a possible link. They knew that the link did not exist. They knew that the link was created out of nothing by cyber experts at Georgia Tech. Again, the political writer is using these weasel words like possible link to lie. And I'm sure he would say, well, you know, these links haven't been proven in court yet. Well, they're literally in the filing and they are backed by evidence. This is one of the things the left constantly does because they believe that they control the courts in full. They believe that they're going to get the result they want. And then that result will allow them to say, yeah, see, all these links were false. That's what the court found. But the evidence is clear and that's why he's not discussing it. The indictment, however, was rife with allegations suggesting, though never outright claiming, that the technical analysis was intentionally designed to smear Trump and that Sussman willfully participated in an effort to deceive the government in order to help Clinton get elected. No, that is exactly what is claimed outright in the filings. Sussman's statements about who he was representing or not representing are clearly presented as well. It is also clear that the technical analysis was designed to smear Trump. They were trying to create out of nothing a connection between the Trump organization and Russia so that they could say that Donald Trump is Putin's puppet and that he's actually making this windfall, this huge financial windfall off his business relationships with Russia and that he was in contact with Russia in order to take down the Clinton campaign. They always accuse the other side of exactly what they're doing. The case was met with broad skepticism among liberal legal commentators who noted that, at least on the face of the indictment, it was far from clear that Sussman had made the misrepresentation at issue. In the eight months since Sussman's indictment, the case has traveled in an unusual path, even by the standards of politically high-profile prosecutions. So liberal legal experts say that it's far from clear that Sussman had actually misrepresented whether or not he was representing a client when he brought the information to James Baker. Now, did they only read the initial indictment? If that's the only evidence they think has been presented in this case so far that is publicly available, well, that's just wrong on its face. They have text messages and witness testimony. About all of this, it is so silly. Perhaps the most notable among the twists and turns of the investigation was the conservative media frenzy that followed a peculiar filing by Durham's team in February. The brief was nominally about whether Sussman's law firm may have had a conflict of interest in representing Sussman, a very tenuous claim that was eventually resolved in favor of Sussman's lawyers. But the filing also contained a conspicuously vague allegation that Jaffe had somehow, quote, exploited his company's access to data pertaining to the executive office of the president of the United States. Cash Patel, a one-time investigator for former Congressman Devin Nunes and later a senior Trump official, claimed that the disclosure, quote, 
shows that the Hillary Clinton campaign directly funded and ordered its lawyers to orchestrate a criminal enterprise to fabricate a connection between President Trump and Russia. His comments ignited a brief firestorm among the likes of Fox News. So just the stupid people. In fact, Durham came nowhere close to making this claim. Within days, Durham's team filed a non-apology apology with the court in which they tried to distance themselves from third parties or members of the media that, quote, have overstated, understated or otherwise misinterpreted facts alleged in the office's filings. And sure, guy, just dismiss Cash Patel at your own peril. While many mainstream writers and outlets have since seemed to generally avoid covering the ins and outs of the Durham case against Sussman, Perhaps because it has proven difficult to do so without becoming enmeshed in the tendentious and often unresolvable claims of the parties, even minute developments have been closely covered by conservative outlets like Fox News, The New York Post, The Federalist, The Washington Examiner, and The Epic Times. The right has generally held Durham up as a sort of anti muller an aggressive independent prosecutor that they happen to like because they believe that he is providing a crucial legal corrective to the supposed mistreatment of Trump and those in his orbit at the hands of the Mueller team and the liberal media. But it is not just them. It is also at the hands of the Clinton campaign and all their allies, the DNC, the FBI, the CIA, the fake president, Joe Biden, and the former president, Barack Hussein Obama. And yes, of course, the pathetic mainstream media. Now, here's where we really get to the solid proof that this writer's perspective is exactly right. And the whole Durham thing is going nowhere. If Durham really were on the verge of exposing the Clinton campaign and vindicating Trump, the trial of Sussman would seem to provide the long awaited opportunity to bring all this to a head. Instead, it has become increasingly clear that the proceeding is unlikely to offer any sort of definitive resolution to the most politically consequential questions at issue. This is largely due to a series of rulings in recent weeks from the presiding judge as part of standard pretrial litigation about what evidence will be permitted at trial. The judge ruled, for instance, that Durham's team cannot suggest to the jury that the data provided to the FBI by Sussman had been improperly obtained or used by Jaffe since prosecutors had failed to provide sufficient evidence showing that Mr. Sussman had concerns that the data was obtained inappropriately or that he had any independent knowledge about the data collection beyond whatever he may have learned from Mr. Jaffe through privileged communications. Even more significantly, the judge curtailed Durham's ability to present evidence on the question that seems to have been driving the case from the start, in particular, whether, as Durham claimed in court filings, there was a wide ranging conspiracy comprised of individuals from the Clinton campaign, the campaign's lawyers, Jaffe, Fusion GPS, and an assortment of IT professionals to prevent Trump's election by, quote, assembling and disseminating the Alpha Bank allegations and other derogatory information about Trump to the media and to the U.S. government. So basically, Durham has evidence that he wants to present Sussman's attorneys and the attorneys of other co-conspirators argued that there was attorney client privilege on information they themselves had already passed to the media. And the judge allowed some evidence and not other evidence. So this writer is taking that as a success for Sussman's attorneys and implying that what Durham was requesting was invalid based on the decision the court made to only allow part of it. The court concluded that while Durham's team had proffered some evidence of a collective effort to disseminate the purported link between Trump and Alpha Bank to the press and others, the contours of this venture and its participants are not entirely obvious. And of course, he should add the word yet, but didn't. The judge went on to observe that it was far from clear that the researchers who were not employed by Mr. Jaffe, Fusion GPS, or the Clinton campaign, and most of whom never communicated with Mr. Sussman, shared in this common goal, and as a result, ultimately held that Durham had failed to justify what, quote, would essentially amount to a second trial on a non-crime, end quote. The judge's rulings were thoughtful and well-reasoned 
which managed to obscure just how unusual it is for prosecutors to be so thoroughly constrained from presenting the case that they want. The thread that connects them is that the evidence that Durham's team proffered over the course of the pretrial proceedings concerning an allegedly broad amorphous joint undertaking among an ill-defined network of loosely affiliated individuals spread throughout multiple organizations and institutions was exceedingly thin based on scattered bits and pieces of information. So basically because Durham hasn't presented the entire picture of the joint venture conspiracy, which no one claims he has, the evidence is too thin to believe it, so let's just continue assuming it's false and ignore all the evidence. A strong conspiracy case usually involves the testimony of a key insider who can verify the government's theory and narrate events from within the group, explaining how various ostensibly distinct pieces of evidence fit into a coherent whole and how the disparate actions of participants served a singular objective. That stuff is not publicly available yet. That does not mean it doesn't exist. Durham's team, however, has so far failed to persuade anyone to serve as this kind of witness, to your knowledge. As it is, the court seems to have conscientiously attempted to wade through a thicket of unusual and complex legal issues in order to focus the trial on what should be at issue based on the crime that Durham actually charged, whether the alleged misrepresentation by Sussman actually occurred, and if so, whether it had a material effect on the FBI, as Durham has claimed. So because the entire picture is not publicly available yet with all of the supporting evidence that supports each and every single claim of that entire picture, then we should assume all of this is nothing once again. The goal of this piece is to make people think they understand what's at issue and then give them reason to never think about this issue ever again. Every time it comes up, they should know it's all nothing. They've known it from the beginning. They've always been this smart. They've always understood the whole case. They read the political piece on the first day of the trial. And ever since then, they've known exactly where everything is headed. Whatever the outcome of the trial, the possibility that political observers on the right will modify their preconceptions about Trump's supposed victimization or the purportedly nefarious scheming of Clinton operatives seems increasingly remote. In fact, many of them seem to have spent recent weeks positioning themselves for the possibility of an acquittal. Well, I'm sure everybody considers that possibility since the Justice Department and the judicial system are so thoroughly corrupted by the global communists and the infiltration of those systems and institutions over decades. It is amazing, amazing to me how the communists will take the acquittals of people on their side or the dismissals of cases on things that have nothing to do with the evidence. They will take those instances as proof that all of the underlying claims involved in those cases are false. Like this is exactly what they do with election fraud stuff. Case after case after case in the fall and winter of 2020 and many cases since have not been dismissed because the evidence wasn't sufficient. They get dismissed on procedural issues. And then the communists pretend that they were dismissed on the evidence because in the minds of child brains, those two things are the same. And they trust in full the integrity of the court system when decisions like that are made. Then they completely disavow the same court system when a white cop is found not guilty of killing a black criminal. Sometimes the courts are good. Sometimes they're corrupt. They just decide when. After the court's ruling on the conspiracy issue, the senior legal correspondent for the Federalist accused the judge of having let politics trump the law in an effort to protect Democrats and Clinton, who was behind it all. A couple of weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal opinion columnist Holman Jenkins wrote that Durham, quote, hardly needs a conviction to have served his country by exposing the truth, end quote. And last Friday, his colleague Kimberly Strassel argued that Durham had already accomplished the far bigger goal than convicting Sussman to, quote, 
put every sleazy collusion player in the hot seat with ramifications beyond the courtroom. Durham's conspiracy theory, and I do not mean to use that term pejoratively, but that is what it is and will remain, will not be tested in court anytime soon, but the notion is likely to live on among conservatives regardless. That's because the notion is already proven. And again, this is another perfect symptom of the child-brained communist mindset. This writer is imagining that the only standard of truth is whether or not the court will find the way the prosecutor wants. And if the court does not, then all of the underlying claims are made false. That's not true, and it's not possible. The truth exists despite what the court decides. The claims in Durham's filings are true. You can see the formation of the joint venture conspiracy. It is not hard to understand what's going on if you pay attention, if you listen to people who are actually informed about it and not trying to simply distract people and cover up what is actually going on. And of course, you have to call it a conspiracy theory, right? It's going to remain a conspiracy theory until the court decides a certain way. And if the court doesn't decide that way, then it will still be a conspiracy theory that will live on. Yes, that's because we already know enough of the truth of the situation to know what happened. The result is particularly ironic since many of these same people vocally criticized the coverage of the Mueller investigation on the theory that the media was cherry picking information and credulously accepting the claims of prosecutors and sympathetic pundits. But they have adopted the same methodology that they once railed against, a combination of pseudo forensic readings of court filings and public documents, politically provocative narratives constructed from largely contextless scraps of information and a strong, seemingly indestructible confirmation bias against their political adversaries. Once again, accusing you of what they are doing. There are people in this writer's sphere who still believe that Donald Trump colluded with Russia to steal the 2016 election. That is utterly insane, completely indefensible. The entire Russia hoax was made up from nothing, and we know how it was created because of what John Durham is bringing out. Although, truthfully, we already knew because of the Michael Horowitz investigation and plenty of other investigative reporting that has occurred over the last six years. It's been six years. Under the circumstances, Durham has, in a perverse sense, already won that, quote, second trial of a non-crime, end quote, that he won't be presenting this week. He's won it in the court of conservative public opinion. This may seem counterintuitive since the judge's decision to prevent him from airing his ambitious theory of a Clinton orchestrated conspiracy should have diminished confidence in his work and in his various assertions. But instead, the notion that Durham has been improperly muzzled by a Democrat appointed judge, however fallacious it may be, seems to have primed the opposite effect among many of his supporters. Almost five years to the day since the start of the Mueller investigation itself, the views of political observers concerning the 2016 election and the Trump-Russia investigation seem impervious to change. For perhaps everyone but Sussman himself, the verdict at this trial may be beside the point. And isn't that incredible? Once again, another ridiculous notion held by child-brained communists. That because the situation on the ground has not yet resolved itself in a way that we would want to see, we are supposed to change our mind about the underlying evidence and what truth that underlying evidence clearly shows. It's basically the notion that nothing in the world can be true until people like this agree that it's true. Until the television shows us, until the New York Times says it, until Politico writes an opinion piece, nothing is true until those things happen. We are forced, we are expected to accept parts of the central narrative in order to even be involved in the conversation. And what I'm saying is that that is the exact reverse. Accepting parts of the central narrative, especially accepting the fullness of the central narrative, is exactly what we should see as the basis for not taking any of these people seriously. 
I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I do not have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!